You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on AmericaOutloud.com. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, 34-year police veteran and the uh, author of A Cop's Life. Well, 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 we have a lot to talk about. Let's take a walk into the briefing room where I'm going to give you my view from the blue. Well, I know this won't come as a surprise to anybody with any common sense whatsoever, uh, as this was probably uh, uh, as inevitable as anything, but Portland marks the deadliest month in 30 years as riots continue. That seems to be a, a, a pretty uh, uh, standard headline, doesn't it, when you're talking about what's going on in Portland, that uh, this is the deadliest month in 30 years. Now, it, it seems that, that Portland is now the epicenter of insanity when it comes down to the, uh, the, the law enforcement, um, uh, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? I think the hysteria, I think that's the word I'm looking for. Law enforcement hysteria. Um, the, ever since the the deadly encounter with George Floyd, uh, of course, and there's a lot to talk about as far as that case goes as well. But Portland has been the epicenter of the insanity, and the um, uh, the number of police officers and law enforcement officers, federal, state, and local, who have been injured is through the roof. In this madness, they've they've taken uh, gunfire. People have tried to burn them to death, blind them. It is absolute savagery what is taking place in Portland. And uh, and it's being led by the mayor. The mayor, who is also, by the way, the self-appointed police commissioner, Ted Wheeler. Uh, I thought that that, uh, that Seattle was Looney Tunes and, and, and several of the others, but uh, there's absolutely no doubt that Portland takes the cake. And now they're getting, they're getting exactly what they have asked for. Uh, the, the deadliest month in 30 years. Um, in addition to that, the Antifa animals, who are wreaking such havoc in the city, are now venturing out into the suburbs and, and, and uh, playing, shall we say, home visits uh, on, uh, on, on the other innocent people that are, that are living there. So it, it, I would say, isn't it time for a recall effort um, against the mayor? Isn't it time that the people of Portland actually stood up and did something and and uh, replaced this this moron that they have uh, as their elected at their elected leader? It, it otherwise he's going to continue. Um, actually, what happened about a week ago is actually kind of amusing. He wanted to show he was one with the people and joined the protesters. Now, of course, when he joined the protesters, he had his plainclothes uh, police security team around him, uh, but he wanted to show that he was one with the people and, uh, and wound up getting tear gassed on purpose uh, so he could show he was one with the people. But apparently, that didn't really go so well for him because the protesters turned on him and attacked him as well. And of course, who saved his butt? Yeah, of course, the police, the same police that he wants to defund and and disarm and and not allowed to use weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
they saved his bacon. Federal, a federal judge there is considering making officers wear numbered jerseys to make them easier for activists to identify. I thought, I, I thought they couldn't get any crazier, but apparently I shouldn't say that anymore because it, it's crazyville all the time. A U.S. district court, this is a United States court, a federal court, um, said he is considering requiring federal officers to wear eight-inch high numbers on their uniforms to make it easier to identify them in cases of alleged excessive force. Yes, you heard me correct. And this is what, this is his quote. I do think it might be appropriate to require any federal law enforcement officer who steps out of the federal courthouse building to wear a unique identifying code, U.S. District Court Michael Simon said during a phone conference. Uh, I, 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 um, I can't hardly believe this. He says he's taking this very, very seriously. And this came uh, in conjunction with a lawsuit he's overseeing involving accusations that federal law enforcement officers have used excessive force against legal observers and journalists. So here's the deal. The officers are supposed to try and figure out in, the, in a crowd of thousands of people who are throwing objects and bricks and, and shining lasers in their eyes and, and Molotov cocktails, they are supposed to try and identify who a journalist might be so that they don't, by, um, by some accident, use tear gas on them or some other, uh, some other type of crowd control measures. I, I don't know... I don't know what these, what people are thinking. I, I can't imagine that they live in some bubble where this makes sense to them. And this is a federal judge. It's, it's mind-boggling. And this is Portland. Uh, meanwhile, there's been, you know, um, un, untold millions of dollars in damage being done. Um, you have crime absolutely rampant. There's not enough police officers to answer calls because they're, they're on, on uh, duty, but yet they're completely ineffective because their hands are tied by Ted Wheeler and their administration. It is absolute bedlam in Portland. And I wish I could tell you that it looks like it's getting better, but it doesn't. It doesn't look like it's getting any better. It seems to be, if not status quo, it's, they've, had, they've had more than two months of nightly violence. Nightly. Every single night, there is more firebombing. There is more arson. There is more vandalism. There is more uh, uh, assaults on police. And no one in the power structure of Portland is doing anything to combat it. In fact, just the opposite. Wheeler is encouraging it. Uh, you know, everyone is always talking about police accountability. Why is there no accountability for the destruction being allowed by elected officials? How does it happen that there is no uh, uh, accountability and no consequences for the inept leadership and the, and what they and what they are doing
Um, it, it's shocking. It's shocking. Now, the Portland police are basically completely ineffective. Um, now, one of the things that the federal government is doing, they just the FBI just opened 300 t- domestic terror investigations as a result of the riots. Now, that's, that's all across the country. That's Seattle, that's Portland, New York, uh, Atlanta, all kinds of, of different places. But what that shows you is that the inept law enforcement response on a local level. You know, there was uh, the riots that were, that were in uh, St. Louis, uh, resulting in four police officers being shot in one night, um, uh, on, you know, countless stores being looted, riots, fires. The, um, the police department made, I think, something like 40 arrests. Uh, and, 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 and the district attorney, Kim Gardner, dropped every single charge against the rioters. Every single charge. Nobody's being held accountable except the police. The police are being held accountable for everything. Uh, so I, w- the fact that the FBI has opened 300 domestic terror investigations is a huge plus because they're the only ones that are going to, that, that there's going to be any justice served. It, because with the feds, you, you get charged by the federal government uh, you're going to prison. They're, they're not going to take you to court unless they have a slam dunk case. And, and the sentencing, you get, you get sentenced to five years, you're doing five years. So I'm, I'm happy to see that the FBI is standing up, that they are going after these uh, Antifa punks and these other uh, opportunists who seem to, uh, seem to be caught up in the, in the moment, if you will. Uh, so that's, um, that's, that's something that I, I actually uh, believe should be not only encouraged, but um, made very, very public. Because otherwise, right now, everybody thinks they can do whatever they want and face no consequences whatsoever. Um, there's also something interesting happening out of Atlanta. Now, you'll remember that the district attorney down there, a guy who is, by the way, under investigation himself for corruption, um, charged a Atlanta police officer for murder for shooting a guy that was trying to shoot him with a taser after uh, after a, a major fight took place and and this suspect pointed the taser at him it's caught on camera and uh, which would be justified in any place in the country as a as a uh, valid shooting the officer did exactly what he was trained to do what he was uh, legally allowed to do in fact um, when you when you are trying to defend yourself as a law enforcement officer, um, that's what you are expected to do. You're not expected to allow yourself to, uh, to face grave uh, physical uh, injury. Uh, apparently, this district attorney over there thinks that, uh, he, that, that, that he can just arbitrarily charge somebody with murder. So they did, and the literally within one day, of this incident happening, the officer um, who did the shooting was summarily fired by the city and the mayor. 
Now, that may sound like something that is okay if you are in maybe some private job somewhere where the boss could call you in and fire you. Uh, that's not the way it is in, in um, civilized society because there are rules, there are regulations, there's laws, there's employment uh, laws. And the city violated it all because of politics. They, they, they just threw this poor cop under the bus. They immediately fired him, even though there was no investigation. There had been no investigation done. And, and yet the, uh, the uh, officer was, was fired. Uh, so a former Atlanta police officer accused of shooting Rayshard Brooks uh, in a Wendy's parking lot is suing the mayor and the interim police chief for firing him, claiming the dismissal violated not only his constitutional rights, but also city code. Uh, Garrett Rolfe is his name. He filed a lawsuit in Fulton County uh, to, uh, in which he claims he was unfairly ousted from the force without an investigation, without proper notice, without a disciplinary hearing, in a direct violation of the municipal code of the city of Atlanta. So, in, in essence, the police department and the mayor, they violated the law because of their political agenda. Uh, now, this is, this is not anything unusual, unfortunately, these days. We are seeing uh, leaders, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting air quotes in, okay? I'm putting quotes around this word, leaders, uh, because uh, their leadership is in deep question. But they are willing to, for their own political purposes, just sacrifice cops willy-nilly, um, fire them, have them arrested, discipline them, charge them with all kinds of, of, of insanity. And this is happening all over the place. So when, when, we're, seeing, when we're seeing this type of, um, of this type of conduct by our elected officials and police leadership, um, what it does for morale of the of the police officers is uh, basically just shows that they they're on their own. So it's it's really it's really a pathetic pathetic response. Um, a, there's a poll that came out. I'll bet you won't see it on CNN. I bet you won't see it on NBC or any place else that that has mainstream media. The poll is a Gallup poll. 81 percent of Black Americans want police to maintain or increase local presence. Yeah, you, you heard me right. This is a brand new poll by Gallup. Now, it's not like this was this is brand X uh, um, pollsters here. This is one of the one of the most uh, uh, respected names in polling. And they found that 81%, more than 80% of black Americans favor a police presence in their area equal to current levels or more. Yes. 61% of black adults surveyed prefer the presence of police uh, to remain with the same, uh, the same with 67% of all adults saying the same. So um, when you hear uh, and you see all these protests claiming that they want to defund the police, dismantle the police, and they're crying out that it's for Black Lives Matter, um, black lives actually want the police there. And why? Because the cops are the only ones that are actually doing something to help. And this poll 
should be very significant, should be all over the headlines, but I'll bet you it won't be. Well, we've about run out of time here in the briefing room. Got a fantastic guest waiting for us in the interview room. This guy is amazing. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's take a walk into the interview room. I have to confess that I have been ignorant to CBD for pretty much uh, my entire life, okay? Now, as a, as a cop, what did I do? I arrested people for marijuana, and and then when when they... Ah, this sucked. Lux Vite Spot. Three, two, one. I want to tell you about a product that I never thought that I would be speaking about, let alone <laughs> endorsing and admitting the use of, and that's CBD. Uh, I, I was completely ignorant to it until some people that I have worked with were telling me that it worked so well. Um, I had people tell me that they had arthritis pain and they used a uh, CBD cream on it. And, and there was just a, several people. Well, I, I didn't give it much thought really until a retired New York City uh, police officer uh, came to me and said that he was in the CBD business and he wanted to advertise on this program. So at first, I got to tell you, I was a little nervous. Uh, I was a little uncomfortable. But he told me all about what this product does. It's called Luxvite. And um, it comes in all kinds of different preparations. And he said, look, why don't you try it, see what you think. And um, if you believe in it, then, you know, I'd like to advertise. So I did, and I do. Luxvite. Go to luxvitecbd.com. Uh, Luxvite, that's L-U-X-V-I-T-E-C-B-D.com. It's got all kinds of uh, potions and 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 all kinds of um, uh, ointments, etc. Uh, I got to tell you, I am impressed. It has no THC content. That was one of the things that um, that this uh, uh, owner of this business told me about, and he is a great guy. Uh, spent uh, many, many years in law enforcement, retired from the NYPD, and he wouldn't have gotten involved in it until he did his research, and he did. Great products, LuxviteCBD.com. That's Luxvite, L-U-X-V-I-T-E-C-B-D.com. Check it out. I think you'll be glad you did. If there is one thing that I truly love, it is my morning coffee. I, I I love it. I love it. I probably drink three to four cups in the morning, and there is nothing like that first sip of that rich brew. Well, guess what? Uh, there is a coffee company that you have got to try. It's Law Dog Coffee. Law Dog Coffee is a police-friendly, because it is uh, not only a police-friendly, but uh, Law Dog is the number one sponsor of the Wounded Blue. And so I got to tell you, I am more than uh, appreciative of what Law Dog Coffee does for for injured officers. But I wouldn't drink it unless it was really, really good. There's all kinds of different blends. It is amazing stuff from Costa Rica, and it's uh, uh, brewed. Excuse me, it is manufactured or uh, roasted. Excuse me, that's the right word. Roasted in a facility that's been around for 90 years from the same family. This is amazing coffee. 
of course, donut shop blend is my favorite. I, I don't know why. But it is truly amazing coffee. Go to LawDogCoffee.com. That's LawDogCoffee.com. It is amazing stuff. Um, it'll they deliver it directly to your house. Uh, you go on a subscription. Trust me, this is some of the best coffee you will ever have. And they donate uh, very heavily to the Wounded Blue. So check it out. Law Dog Coffee. Tastes so good, it ought to be illegal. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. I have a very special guest with me in the interview room of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Uh, he, is a, he is a man so accomplished that it's, it's, hard for me to even, it's hard for me to even explain. But I'm just going to be real, real quick here. His name is Dr. Andrew Dennis, and uh, he is a trauma and burn surgeon in Chicago's Cook County Hospital, one of the busiest urban trauma centers in the country, where he treats an average uh, more than 20 critically injured patients a day. Well, why is he on Blue Lives Radio? Because he's also a sworn police officer and member, medical director of two Chicago regional SWAT teams. Uh, Dr. Dennis founded Medical Tactics, a company that teaches life-saving tactics to law enforcement officers, educators, and corporate leaders. And he is also a surgical inventor and active clinical researcher, not to mention the fact that he is an author. And uh, I, I, he's got so much going on that we, I could spend the entire show talking about just what his accomplishments are. Dr. Dennis, thank you so much for being on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Thanks for the opportunity, Randy. All right, let's get started. I mean, first of all, when I when I heard uh, about um, a doctor that is also a cop, uh, it kind of blew my mind, and I, I really wanted to reach out to you. And we had a couple of great conversations that I want to I, I want to talk about for my listeners. First of all, let's talk about you. Um, talk about how you got involved in your medical career, and then how that 
how you got involved in, in law enforcement as well? So, um, all great questions. Um, the, uh, you know, I started out, I grew up in New Jersey, actually. Um, started out as a volunteer, EMT, then medic, um, then police dispatcher, firefighter, you know, the whole kind of thing. Because everything in the, in the Northeast corridors uh, where I grew up was all volunteer. I uh, went to school in Massachusetts, uh, grad school in Philly, med school in Kansas City. Um, and during that entire time, I had been involved in public safety, both in law enforcement and EMS. Uh, and then during my residency in general surgery, um, I, uh, I was asked to, and this was before Thames Tactical Emergency Medical Support really even ever existed. Uh, we had taken care of a police officer that was shot and knowing my background, um, the chief in the town that my, the hospital I was training at work, uh, was at asked me, Hey, you know, think about coming and training my guys a little bit. And I said, that sounds great, but I work a hundred hours a week and I'm a surgical resident. Um, you know, hit me up a little later. I'm totally interested. I finished my residency, went on to fellowship. Um, I was again approached. Uh, in early 2002 um, and uh, during my fellowship in trauma bone and critical care at the county hospital I hit my program director up and I said hey what do you think about me being on, me going to the police academy in Illinois uh, becoming a cop here again and um, uh, and then getting involved with law enforcement uh, specifically at the special operations level he's like I think it's a great idea it'll you know it's it's unique no one's doing it uh, i think it's got merit so uh lo and behold i was able to fashion a police academy education in illinois we were, we were at that time we were able to do it over a year um nights and weekends and so on uh, and also i was able to get sworn in illinois i got hired up by one of the local suburban agencies put on the north illinois police alarm system spot team um and hence began my law enforcement career in illinois um, and since then, it's carried forward. I've uh, I did a fair amount of work for uh, different agencies and different roles. I was the UC for the DEA for a year um, uh, on several operations. Um, uh, our the team that I got started with is a, is a weapons of mass destruction team. So um, my role in law enforcement was quite diverse while still working. Uh, not a huge amount on the street, but a, a quite a bit. Um, and then I moved over to the Cook County Sheriff's Office uh, for the last 11 years, um, where I was, again, a police officer, medical director, working with the hostage barricade and terrorism team. And then just recently, in the last two years, left the Sheriff's Office. I'd always been working part-time as a police officer for a small suburban agency up north. And I moved over to the Illinois State Police uh, this year as a sworn position as the medical director. Um, so Illinois State Police Officer and Medical Director. So it's it's been an evolution of, uh, of a pat and a passion at the same time. And uh, it's been a, it's allowed me to intertwine my research together with practical applications, training medics, building out um, a vision, uh, you know, and to hopefully better law enforcement. And again, my goal was never to be an end of one. It was always to be make a sustainable program bigger than us. So at the county, we created a operational medicine fellowship, uh, which 
over the years, we've put out six fellows that have all gone on to large agencies to become tactical physicians or medical directors of law enforcement agencies. So my goal is always going to pay it forward. Um, in Illinois, blue blood runs very, very thick, and it's really been an honor to be part of this uh, of this world um, in Illinois for the last you know, 19 years now. It's fascinating the the fact that you um, you know so dedicated that you um, you know went through all the training and then have been serving as a as a real cop. I mean, the, the, we're we're not talking about an honorary position here. You've actually worked the streets. You did undercover work. Um, you've uh, you've done all that, and somehow you've also you've also maintained your position as a trauma surgeon. Now, talk about that for a little bit. I mean. You're 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 a trauma surgeon in one of the busiest hospitals in the country. How does how does that that affect your um, your emotional welfare when you are literally de- dealing with with death every single day, and then you move over into your law enforcement function? How does that how does that affect you emotionally and spiritually? I think there's a lot of questions in that one question. <laughs> yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, let me back up a little bit. So, you know, one of the mentors that I looked to when I started in this career, and, and mind you, I'm not the only doc that's a police officer and works tightly with law enforcement. There are several. There are a few surgeons. There's only three surgeons I really know around the country that do this. But there are a fair amount of ER doctors that do this. Um, and, again, the emergency medicine lifestyle is a little bit more conducive to this. Trauma surgeries tends to be a lot more in-hospital work with a lot less free time. So um, there are a few surgeons. But again, um, the uh, with the understanding that um, it is a time sink on both sides, and as a trauma surgeon, you tend to work in people's, you know, you tend to live in people's worst nightmares on the majority of the time. If you see me, you're not having a good day. Sure. Um, it's, but when you combine that with law enforcement, it's, it's actually quite surprisingly symbiotic. Um, you know, my phone is the one that rings, uh, in the middle of the night, whether, even if I wasn't part of the agency, my phone still rings in the middle of the night. And I've always been able to serve as a translator <clears throat> for the agency I've been part of, but even for ones that I'm not, uh, because, you know, doctors talk their own language. Yes. So when you have officers involved in injuries or shootings or whatever and the world of medicine intertwines with law enforcement it's always good to have a liaison and that's been one big role that i've been able to fill and and i'm very happy to do that i feel like that actually offers quite a bit of change but the other thing honestly pardon me is that um the most important thing i think is that is allow it allows me to see the world through multiple lenses you know, as a doctor, uh, as a trauma surgeon, you see a lot of violence. We do at the county because that's a good portion of what we take care of is, is violence. It's intentional level trauma. So that's one lens. Um, you see the side effects of it at the patient level. You see the side effects of it at the staff level. You see the side effects of it, um, how it impacts collaterally to families. Um, and then you also see how it impacts first responders. And in the next breath, 
you know, that's one facet of my life. And then I turn my head and look through a different lens and I see the world as a policeman. And, uh, and that is also, you know, quite eye-opening because when you go out and do these high-risk search warrants or um, you are in parts of town that most people don't go to, uh, you realize that the world is not the Lincoln Park that my kids grow up in. The world is far more divergent than that. And, uh, and everyone, you know, what I call a home and what my kids call a home and what my residents, who I'm responsible for training effectively call a home, is not usually uh, in line with what a lot of our patients call a home. Sure. So if your perspective is only on the hospital side, the doors to the trauma unit, and you don't know where your patients come from, and yet you have to send them back out into that world to convalesce, but you don't know what that world is, how are you doing your job effectively? And I think it's part of my police job, living in both those worlds frequently, has allowed me to impact my residents and my medical students who we train to try to impart on them how important it is to ride with the ambulances, to ride with the police department, to get a perspective that is not one-sided because on our side of doors, it's a very sterile environment. Um, whereas that is not the case, you know, from where your patients come from. So that's really, that to me is how it's impacted me. That's fascinating. I, I, th that is a perspective <laughs> that I, I, I would never have thought about, but when you say it, it's, it, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, but it gives you such an incredible perspective that, uh, I mean, what a, what an opportunity for personal growth to, uh, you know, to be in your, in your shoes and to, and to be able to see things from both perspectives. Now I, I know that you're, a, you're a very, very accomplished, um, individual. I mean, you're, I mean, just going to medical school, is one thing, but, but to be a, a trauma surgeon and the skill level that you have to have for that is, is incredible, but you don't just end there. You, you're a great believer in, um, in passing knowledge on. And I think, you know, this is a good time to talk about the fact that you were amongst all the other things, an author and you, uh, you have written a book called officer down. Uh, tactical practical guide to surviving injury in the street now this is something that that is of great interest to me personally and professionally as well as to my listeners many of whom are law enforcement or related to law enforcement <clears throat> talk about that book what what um why you wrote it and and how you're imparting that knowledge to to save lives well with everything there's a, in my life there's a backstory. So I would briefly give you that. You know, and the other thing I'll tell you is, uh, just to digress back for one second to your last question. You know, I've been very fortunate. I have the greatest trauma surgery job in the world. I get to be a trauma surgeon at the oldest, most famous one, and one of the busiest urban trauma centers in the country. I get to be an academic surgeon and a surgical scientist. I get to be a policeman. I get to be a EMS trauma medical director. And I get to be a producer on television shows and write complete, you know, fiction to balance out my life, working on Chicago Med um, and then part, uh, occasionally working on fire and PD. So that to me rounds out. So I, I, that just, you know, allows me uh, a lot of opportunity. And again, uh, that, that 
that's how I classify myself as extremely fortunate. So do you ever, do you ever sleep? Do you ever sleep? I don't, I don't know how you fit that into your schedule. Uh, I do. I, I do. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a really good delegator. I've, I've learned to create systems and staff and, um, and so that's how I get around it. But yes, for a long time and, and for most many days, I don't sleep. And I'm good with that, you know. Um, so getting back to your question. So in, so having, you know, been in Illinois, being the place since 2000, uh, end of 2002, early 2003, um, and then, uh, you know, trying to carve out a mission of how a doctor can work symbiotically with law enforcement. Um, you know, it was an evolution. And in around 2007, or somewhere around there, I had a conversation with a colleague and we talked about, you know, how could we focus law enforcement training um, and add to it where, where we think there are deficits. And at that time, we felt that there were, you know, firemen got training on how to carry people, the cops didn't. And there was really no great self-aid buddy aid training. Everyone had a blue box, a blue metal box first aid kit in the back of the squad car, but few knew how to use it. And most of those things were irrelevant to what you would really need. So um, combining my previous life experiences and in, in trauma surgery and general surgery um, into law enforcement, we looked and we said, well, there's clearly a deficit in self-aid body aid training, which wasn't even labeled that at the time. It was just like, what can we train? Um, and, and at the same time, coincidentally, the chief in Desplaines, who I was working for uh, as, a, as a part-time police officer, came up to me and said, do you think you can do an interview with, um, I'm sorry, do you think you can do a, um, a training, an in-service training with, our, with the agency to, um, to kind of maybe facilitate, you know, what to do if you get hurt, how to, what to do if you get shot, something like that. I said, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think that'd be great. So hence the backstory. We didn't really have a course, knew nothing about it. I built this, did this in service. Um, rather rapidly, it went out over the internet um, on a couple chat rooms, I guess, at the time. And uh, next thing I know, I was getting emails from people saying, hey, you know, from all over the country saying, hey, can you, that in-service course you just taught in this can you teach it for us in New Jersey and in California? And we're like, what course? I just wrote a couple of PowerPoints. <laughs> I'm a really good crammer. I just like put this together at the whim. So, um, so hence medical tactics for law enforcement was born. And <clears throat> we, we, we went on to build a course, build a fantastic course, train up a cadre. And, um, but what we did differently really was that we combined uh, not only medical tactics, the physical skill set to uh, mitigate injury, but we started, but we felt it was important to, to combine that with mindset. And then not only mindset, but then provide individuals who went through the class with some sort of kit so that they could walk away from so that we didn't just give them training that was useless that they couldn't apply because they didn't have the right tools. So. Medical tactics was intended to build out to marry mindset, necessary skill sets, and then provide the students with tools that they walk away from the course with. So medical tactics for law enforcement um, was very successful. Uh, for you know seven, eight years, we were very into it and we went around the country 
we taught about 7,000 federal, state, and local law enforcement officers around the country and actually around the world in several different other countries um, during that time. And then during that time, you know, we, came, we, we wrote the, where I wrote the book called um, Officer Down, which was to pay, intended to pair with the course uh, as a reference guide. So that's kind of how it happened. Um, we still teach it. We moved it online uh, because uh, it was just getting very challenging to run a company that big. Um, sure. Uh, simultaneously do all my real jobs. So, <laughs> uh, and still publish and do the things that I'm expected to do uh, at work. So uh, we moved the course online. We recorded everything and we created uh, and we changed the brand to policemd.com with the intent that you can go online, sign up, take the course in one of three ways, an awareness level, an operational level, or we can still come out and teach. And we do occasionally, just not as frequently as we were doing that around the country before. And that, that's an active, that is an active site right now. That's where, that's where right. people can, can go to as a resource, learn about you, and also um, uh, get the information to take this, this online training course. Correct. And, and again, you can do it online. You can do it, you know, we just try to make it accessible. Knowing that online training is far from optimal, but it's better than nothing for a lot of people. And, you know, we can do it. Uh, we built it so that you can do purely online. You can hybrid it and do online and then we can send an instructor out or you can do the entire thing, you know, live. Again, per agency. And we, and we do it not only for law enforcement, we, we do it for schools uh, and for businesses. Um, around around the country as well, so it, it's not a primary business of mine. It, it's a passion more than anything else. Sure, uh, but uh, nonetheless, it does exist. I wanted to talk about one one word that you mentioned very prominently, <laughs> and it's a it's a, a word that is um, has a lot of impact and also a very large subject, and that is mindset. You, you you talk about the mindset and why it is important in a tr in in uh, this context. Let's talk about what mindset really truly means to to survival. Well, I think mindset means is really in, in my mind. It's no pun intended. Uh, back <laughs> in vocabulary, I guess. Um, it's how you walk outside the house. It's, and I'm not the first to preach about this. I just believe that it, it cannot be taught independently or you can't teach medical skill set without teaching it simultaneously. You know, it, it's, it's a survival mindset that many preach about and I am a big believer in. Um, years ago, I'll give you an example. You know, we take care of a lot of people that get shot. At our institution, close to 2,000 per year individuals that get shot, we take care of on average. Wow. So, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of people. And that's where I think scares most people, most law enforcement officers is getting shot. Sure. Um, although that's not the primary mode of death of law enforcement, it is certainly uh, it, the most abstract. And, you know, given that most law enforcement officers will go their entire career with never drawing their firearm, thank God. Um, it, it, it's still the one thing that looms in people's heads because you bring it under the fight. So um, it is, so it's imperative that those two things go hand in hand. Years ago, early uh, 2006, five, six, something like that, took care of a Chicago police officer who 
Um, we were, I was working that night, get a call from the fire department and says, uh, we have a Chicago cop shot in the chest, sick. And that, that's what we, when someone's unstable, the, the, the trauma alert we should fall to is sick. So uh, you're, you're sick and dying or you're stable. Um, so they said he's sick. Um, we got the radio report and, you know, and, and that always heightens things when it's a public safety, you know, professional cop or fireman or medic. So, you know, we mobilize, we wait for him. He comes in and sure enough, he comes in, they wheel in and they're, they're panicked. He's pale as a ghost. He is a little obese um, and his blood pressure is in the toilet. And uh, we look at him and, you know, peel off his vest and in trauma, you know, it's, there's no modesty. Strip them and flip them, stick a finger and tube in every hoe, which we did. Um, and then as we're rolling them and looking for holes, you know, we're, we're putting big IVs in his arms and giving them some blood and some fluid and uh, sticking them for blood. And, you know, I mean, it's the most invasive thing you can be as a trauma patient. And I, I don't see a hole in them. And sure enough, you know, we give him some fluid, his blood pressure starts coming back up, his color comes back. And we flip them, we look everywhere. And there's there's no hole. So then I go to the floor. I look, pick up his vest, and sure enough, he was shot. Um, there was a bullet in the outer. Now in Chicago, we wear outer vests. In the outer vest, in the outer pocket, in the front, where he had a book, uh, there was a bullet, and the bullet was sitting in the book. In the book, it didn't actually even impact the Kevlar. It didn't dent the Kevlar. There was no backface symmetry of the vest, so it was a big thump. But why did this guy come in hypotensive? And we see this time and time again. It was, you know, psychogenic shock. He thought he, he in his mind, I got shot, I'm going to die. And, you know, he, he almost did, even though there was no physical injury at that time. And that we see, that was not the first time we've seen it. So that impacted me. And um, the tenets that we try to stick to and we train to is that, you know, if you're injured or shot and you're not dead, you're not dead, you're, you know, and you're still in the fight. And that's, that's very powerful to walk out of the house with that. If you get injured, just because you're injured does not mean you're out of the fight. A B um, if you're injured, not dead, then you're still in the fight. And then the other thing is that I really, really, really want the law enforcement officers to understand that, um, just because you shoot the offender or because the offender is injured does not mean he or she is out of the fight and therefore he or she still needs a threat to you. Yes. So every day we get people coming in that are at 23 times. You know, I have a patient patients coming with 23 plus holes in them and they're still MFME and, you know, kicking and screaming and lo and behold, we may even send them home the same night. Um, and that person is still a threat. So, just because that person, you shoot somebody or you, you fight with somebody, you incapacitate them does not mean they're out of the fight and not a threat. So that's a, that's a, tenants. That's a very, I, I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I want to talk about, about the, the sociological implications that we've seen um, uh, regarding law enforcement training. You know, we, we saw uh, and are still seeing a administrative attitude in a lot of police agencies that is turning away from officer survival training. And when I talk about officer survival, I'm talking about, you know, how to survive 
physically and emotionally in gunfights. You know, there's a lot, there's a, a number of, of of trainers out there that have done so very successfully, and yet we've seen administrations buckle to political pressure and 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 turn away actually um, uh, order officers not to even attend that type of training. And what you're saying is absolutely critical, and it is part of of how to survive physically and emotionally on the street. So, uh, you know, it, it boggles my mind when I see administrations uh, basically, you know, um, commit cowardice in, in the in the face of of, of uh, you know, public pressure and not train their officers properly. Have you seen? Have you seen this type of uh, activity in, in your area? I think that, um, you know, prejudices die when people die. And as younger, more uh, contemporary leaders move into law enforcement leadership roles, I think you have better chance of not having that circumstance happen. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I, I, we've definitely seen it. We've seen it with, with, with all types of law enforcement uh, leaders, but, but you know, I, I, as I as we move more contemporary in training, uh, I, I for sure see improvement in this world. You know, one of the things that we really focus on, and I've always focused on, is that um, <clears throat> you know, injury is an abstract thing, and it's highly motivated by fear. And fear is a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. Um, you know, your instinct, an instinct of an animal and a human being says, fire, run away, fight, run away. But in our world, there is no running away. You step up and you run the exact opposite direction that everything about your instinct that your, your instinct tells you to do. So, you know, but, but you have to combine that with the understanding that humans have a very predictable stress response. And that stress response, um, is is really it can be modified and, and worked with. So when we talk about training police officers with regard to injury, remember, most cops hopefully will never be injured. Most cops will never draw their firearm in line of duty. Um, so where are they getting most of their information from about injury? And most of them going to most of it actually comes from Hollywood. Yeah. So here's the problem: frame of reference dictates your perception. Your perception impacts your fear. Your fear can strengthen or compromise your mindset. And as your mindset, because your mind is tied to your body, that can influence your physiological response, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your breathing rate. And all of those things culminate in your overall response, which we dictate as your reaction as your decisions and actions so if you want so if you're let's take take it this way if your frame of reference is based purely on hollywood which is now flawed because you watch you know actor x shoot bad guy x and he either goes down or he doesn't go down most of the time he gets shot in the shoulder and he's unconscious that's a miss that's misinformation that's a frame of reference that can impact your perception erroneously. It can elevate your fear, 
can compromise your mindset. It can, which, which can impact negatively your physiologic response, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your breathing rate. And that all culminates in flawed decisions, decisions and actions. Whereas medical tactics, the theory that we worked with was if you bring real stories and real pictures and real genuine experience to modify frame of reference so that perceptions are accurate, your fear is in check, your mindset is strong, your physiologic response is now in check, and your decisions and actions are overall stronger. That's what the goal of medical tactics or police MD was. That's where we went with this. And that's what the book was about. Um, so, so yeah, that, that, that's, that, that, that's that, what I think is important. I, 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 I'm, I'm so uh, pleased to hear your perspective on this because this is, this is literally life-altering and life-changing uh, uh, information that can save the lives of our officers. And uh, shockingly, we have, we have run out of, uh, out of time, and we didn't even get into half the topics I want to talk about. So I definitely want to have you back on this program because the next thing I really want to talk about is post-traumatic stress injury because I know you are highly informed on that and, and have some great research to talk about. So we, we will reconvene, if that's okay with you. Um, but let's talk about your, so people can connect with you on policemd.com. That's policemd.com. They can find your book, Officer Down, uh, Tactical Practical Guide to Surviving Injury in the Street. Where do they find that? It's on Amazon, but right now Amazon's not selling any books. So um, you can go directly to the publisher, which is Kendall Hunt, um, and, uh, and it can be ordered directly from there. So this is great stuff this for, for my street officers that are listening. Um, check out policemd.com. This is the online training course that, that can literally save your life is on that, uh, is on that website. And um, uh, Dr. Dennis, I really want to take a, a, a brief moment and thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to, um, to come on and talk to me about I know a, a subject that you are incredibly passionate about, and that's saving the lives of our law enforcement officers. Thanks, Randy. I very much appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because you're right. It is, it is a passion. It is extremely near and dear to my heart, and it's part of my everyday life. So hopefully I can pay it forward you know, as best I can. I think you're doing a hell of a job at that. <laughs> I appreciate it. In my 34-year police career, I'm really proud of a lot of the accomplishments, and um, there's something that that I'm most proud of. And I think that in the in the years since I retired, I think the most important thing that I could ever have done was to create the Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. It is a 501c3. It is a charity. There is uh, an incredible amount of work that's gone into this. And the people involved, I got to tell you, we have uh, uh, a peer team that is incredible. All of the officers are part of this peer team have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up and screwed over. They provide peer support to injured and disabled officers, whether those injuries are physical, emotional, psychological. And, uh, you know, here's the thing. 
when you get hurt on the job, many people believe that you're going to get well taken care of, both uh, uh, through your department and the city, and you're going to get good medical attention. Well, the, the reality is quite different in many, many places. Um, there are so many officers who have been thrown away once they have become injured and disabled. If you are one of those officers, contact us at thewoundedblue.org and uh, we will provide you peer support because that's what we do. We also have an incredible program, Code 4 Total Wellness. This is unbelievable. 24-hour-a-day telemedicine with licensed MDs, discounts to dental work, discounts to x-rays and prescriptions, uh, financial counseling and wellness, and most importantly, the Confidential Assistance Program for Emergency Responders. This is an unbelievable program. Uh, it is life-saving. It can save careers, marriages, and lives. Go to thewoundedblue.org, thewoundedblue.org. See who we are, see how you can help, because I gotta tell you, uh, these men and women need all the help that they can get, and your donation of five, 10, 15 bucks can make the difference for, the, for, for one of these men and women who has been injured in the line of duty. Check it out, thewoundedblue.org. Uh, we have an amazing documentary film on Amazon, called The Wounded Blue, and also a series uh, on YouTube. Go to YouTube and then punch in Wounded Blue TV and you'll see our series, Voices of the Blue. Check it out, thewoundedblue.org. Hey, thanks so much for joining me this week on this episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on America Out Loud. Listen, follow me on Facebook. It is the voice of American law enforcement. Uh, also, Twitter, at LT Randy Sutton. Oh, I think I have some other social media accounts, but I don't use them that much. So, Facebook, if you've got some story ideas or some feedback, hit me up over there. And we will, uh, we'll see you again next week, right here on America Out Loud.